Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to? A special production of the Missouri Bar, a regular look at the legal system and you. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. April 16th is National Stress Awareness Day. It's also, that's because you're done paying your taxes. Yes. <laughs> presumably. Woo. It, it, it's also Save the Elephant Day and it's National Wear Your Pajamas to Work Day. That's which, a lot of days. Which reminds me <laughs> of an old Groucho Marx joke. I once shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got into my pajamas, I'll never know. <laughs> oh. it's, it's also National Eggs Benedict Day. But more seriously. Bob, it is also National Healthcare Decisions Day, a day devoted to setting up end-of-life healthcare wishes. Which most Americans don't do. That's right. Most Americans don't have advanced directives. Studies show 90% of Americans have heard of living wills. 75% have even thought about them. But only 29% have one. So let's talk about that today with somebody who specializes in this issue, a person who was a licensed clinical social worker before she became a lawyer. That's Bridget Fernandez, whose law firm in St. Louis is called Fernandez Elder Law. She has almost 20 years of experience at a major medical center in St. Louis, in addition to home health care and adult day services. That experience is invaluable in helping clients and families navigate health care and long-term care mazes. Bridget, welcome to our program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. So I want to start off with asking the question, since we've been talking about National Healthcare Decisions Day, why do we need one? Well, it's so important. And as most of us are going through our healthcare experience, many people don't know what they want or haven't given thought to it. So National Healthcare Decisions Day is the day, it's April 16th, it's been happening every year. And it's a day really to bring attention, to educate, to inspire people about writing down, documenting their health care wishes and appointing a surrogate. And most people, as you mentioned in the introduction, haven't done that. Why not do it on a holiday when, when the families are together and normally <laughs> going to be talking about stuff? Well, and that's a, that's a great time to begin that conversation and really just preparing your, uh, your health care directive and your power of attorney for health care is just one piece. But the conversation about it, making your wishes known, we often encourage our clients and people in the public to do that. Start it when you've got the family together for Sunday dinner or a holiday dinner. Maybe it doesn't, you know, not everybody likes that idea, but it's often a very effective way to get your wishes known. Do you have any suggestions for when I'm at Thanksgiving this year and I say, hey, pass the turkey, how do I transfer to, hey, dad, what are also are your end-of-life care wishes? Do you have any suggestions on how to start that conversation? Well, I'm laughing because that's funny. There is really no easy entree into that end-of-life conversation, but often we'll encourage people to use experiences, maybe experiences of friends or others to say, hey, this is what's happening to my friend's mother. She's in the hospital. And you know, they never talked about what she wanted or who would help her to make those decisions if she wasn't able to. So sometimes even relating it to someone else's experience and say, hey, I don't want to be in that same position with you, dad, or or even us saying to our adult children, I want you to know what I want. And I always kind of say, we want our children or those people that are going to be making those decisions for us to hear our voice in their head when they're asked those questions. Would your mother want this particular procedure. Is it easier to bring it up if you've made this decision yourself and done this process yourself? Well, I, I think so, but it doesn't always happen that way. It often starts when when there's a crisis, when someone ends up in the hospital and people haven't prepared, either that person who is sick or their adult children who might be stepping in as their surrogate. So I often, as I have older clients come to me, I'll get their adult children as well. Hey, I, I realize now this is important. 
because we didn't know what our parents wanted or we didn't know what treatments, you know, they wanted or what was, you know, their expectation for their health care at any time and particularly at the end of their life. Bridget, what's the, the biggest misunderstandings or the biggest set of misunderstandings that you face when you talk to people about this issue? I think the biggest misunderstanding is they think they're giving up control and that that person is going to um, pull the plug, so to speak, before it's time. And so that always brings us to, okay, let's think about who you, first of all, let's think about who you're appointing, because you've got to appoint someone that you trust that will follow your wishes uh, and not, you know, but we struggle. Sometimes people struggle with knowing who that person is, especially if they don't have family members that they can rely on. But I think that that's the biggest misconception. They think they're giving up control and that someone is going to hasten their death um, if, if, they, if they prepare this document. So how does the form support this? So you have the conversation you've heard from your parents or you've shared with your significant other or loved ones what your wishes are verbally, but what are the actual forms and paperwork that you need in place? Can you start diving into what that consists of? Sure, absolutely. So what we're really talking about, and you'll hear a lot of different terms. You'll hear advanced directive, healthcare directive, living will. People will call it all kinds of different things. But what they're really talking about, and what I think is a critical document, is a durable power of attorney for health care. And in that durable power of attorney for health care, you have the first part, which is where you appoint an agent and successor agents. And then generally it's followed with the second part, which is a person's health care directive. So that's just the first piece, completing the paperwork, so that your treatment team at the hospital, your physicians, everyone sees in writing what your wishes are and whom you've named to be your decision maker if you're not able to speak for yourself. That's the first part. Then you got to follow it up with the conversation if you haven't already had that conversation. Just as a kind of a departure, but while we're on this subject, are there other durable powers of attorney that people need to be thinking about in terms of transferring authority over various parts of their lives? Right. So really, when I, I, when I think about estate planning, I think about two pieces, planning for when we're alive and we're incapacitated, and then planning for our death. What we're really talking about here is planning for our potential incapacity. That's that durable power of attorney for healthcare, wanting someone to make those medical and care and treatment decisions, and also the power of attorney for finances. They, they really go hand in hand, but really are separate documents. You mentioned naming an agent, and then you also mentioned a backup agent. Why do you need two people? Well, and, and oftentimes we use three, and we generally, it's generally my recommendation to use them in succession. So you name that first agent, and then you want to give, you know, give a backup just in case that person is for some reason unavailable, unwilling, passes away, resigns, just can't do it for you, then then you've got a successor or maybe even another successor to that. Because the person who's executing the power of attorney document, you know, they're presumed to have capacity, they have capacity, they're executing it. But maybe many years down the line, if you only name one person, that person passes away. And now the principal, the person whose power of attorney has been executed, maybe doesn't have capacity, can't do it again. So now it's as if they had never planned in the first place. I assume it's. I assume there's. It's a good idea to ask this person if they want if they would take this job or they would accept this responsibility. I, I, I suppose from time to time there are some people who are surprised to find out they have been named the agent. 
Right. It is a good idea. And I think you're right. Sometimes people are. I will hear from agents saying, I never knew until until something happened and I went to look in the file cabinet where my mom said all the important papers were. So I encourage them because to me, if they don't know they're the agent, they may not be paying attention if you're having conversations or just speaking about what you want or wouldn't want. And I think they'd pay a little closer attention if they knew they were the person that may have to step in and make those decisions. What kind of responsibilities do I have if I'm named an agent other than just to make sure that the document is available to whoever makes decisions? Well, I think, first of all, if you're named an agent, I think it's important to, if you know, you know, obviously, if you know about it, to talk to that person, find out exactly what they're thinking about, what do they see as a quality of life, and to read that power of attorney. I can't tell you how many people really don't read the documents, and so they don't know. So in each document, it's spelled out specifically what their legal responsibilities are, what they can do. You know, for another, in other words, give consent to prohibit, withdraw any type of health care, psychiatric, psychological care, make all necessary arrangements for health care, move a person in and out of a treatment facility. And, you know, the list goes on and on. Consent to procedures. You know, we're talking not even necessarily life prolonging, but sometimes just regular procedures that a person needs to have if they're not able to speak for themselves. So the documents, really, the term directive is the laundry list of decisions that you've already made, and now you're asking your agent to carry out those decisions based on the different scenarios you may find yourself in. That's exactly right. That's a very good way to describe it. I know you mentioned some of the things that are commonly covered um, that you just went through, but should these documents include absolute language like always and never, maybe I never want to be put on a respirator? Should I use the phrase never or should I leave it more open to interpretation? Well, I, I would have to say, and I don't know this is necessarily a legal opinion, but really a practical opinion based on my experience. I would generally counsel against doing any um, absolute, using any absolute language, just because people will do these, prepare these documents and maybe never look at them for 10 years. And we've had, we have such advances and changes in technology. So I think back to when we first started really doing these in the 1990s. And people would say, I only want dialysis for two weeks, or I only want this for one week. Well, there are so many, think, think for your own experience, there's so many procedures that were extreme and extraordinary five years ago that we do outpatient. They do brain surgery and send someone home. Uh, you know, we do these procedures and people are going home the next day or the same day. So I, I really caution against using that type of language, but more describing what is a quality of life. And, and basing decisions on, it, does the person have a reasonable expectation of recovery? And how often should we review our, our documents? Well, I would, I would tell people, if you've had a major life change, that's a good time to take a look at those documents. If perhaps one of your agents that you've named is not available, perhaps has their own health issues, and you want to, or, you know, and always if you want to change it or you feel differently, or you maybe you don't have the relationship you had with those individuals, when you prepare that document. So really anytime there's a life change or anytime there's a change really with your, the agents that you've named. And what if I change my mind? Can I revoke my advance directive? Yes, you can. You can absolutely revoke it by pre- preparing a new one. There's language in the documents that say uh, this, you know, this new document executed on this date revokes any prior documents. And then make sure that you follow up and provide your healthcare providers, your physician, the hospitals with that updated document. 
Are and those the only people who should have a copy? Primarily. Obviously, I think it's important for the agent to have a copy of the document or at least to know where you keep those documents. So if in an emergency, they're able to access them. But I think certain a primary, your primary care physician, and if you know, because of the um, Patient, care, Patient Self-Determination Act in 1990, hospitals are required to ask you, ask a person who's being admitted if they have one. So that's always an opportunity to provide that to the hospital. Otherwise, these documents are good for the rest of your life unless you change them in some way or another. Right, or unless the law changes or something like that, yes. I've been in some situations where the DNR, the Do Not Resuscitate Order, is put on a person's hospital record when they're in a hospital or a nursing home. Is that what flows out of the, the living will or the durable it, power of attorney? Yes, it certainly can. So it, it, sometimes an individual is able to make that decision themselves. You know, the, I do not want to be resuscitated and inform their physician. And if they're not, that is one of the, the things that an agent can decide on their behalf. With your experience previously as a social worker and now as a lawyer practicing in this area, what advice would you give to those who've put it off or who, I mean, none of us like to think about our death, but unfortunately it's what certain ta- taxes and death is. It? <laughs> life, is life is terminal. It is. <laughs> right. And I, I think you mentioned that. You wouldn't also Ben Franklin, I, I believe said nothing is certain except death and taxes. Yes. Right. So that's where we got the April 16th day, the day after tax day. I think it's do it. You know, I, I just encourage people. So many people perceive doing estate planning and appointing agents as giving up control. And so I try and just approach it as it's just the opposite. It's you taking control, naming the persons, person or persons that you believe know you best and will be able to make decisions on your behalf. Well, with changes in technology that we have these days, is it still a written document that is primarily considered? Or could I set up a video camera or even do a selfie video on my cell phone and say, this is what I want to have done? Do things like that have the same validity as a written document? Well, I, that's a very that's very interesting, and I and I'm sure we're going to get more to that as time goes on. I haven't had the personal experience of people doing that, but what I will say is obviously that would be evidence to the physician, to the agent, of your wishes, and and that's really kind of what this is all about. You know, the the hospitals, you know, want clear and convincing evidence of what your wishes are of someone that you have named. So I don't know if we're to that point yet, and I don't know the legalities of that, but I'm, I'm sure within a few years, we're going to really be talking about that. That's interesting because my doctor actually suggested that in addition to having an advanced directive in place, that I do a recording of that nature. Um, and he said, just because from his perspective, he thought it would be more convincing to family members who maybe had not already been privy to your wishes. Right. And, and maybe I I still, (laughs) my concern would still be, how would that be interpreted? Because if the, if the hospital staff, you know, if you, if we just have a directive, then the treatment team only has that directive and they become the interpreters of our directive. They then just have to decide what did you mean, what you meant by that particular statement. So I'm more in favor of making sure you have that agent appointed because of all of the gray area that occurs in healthcare. It's not black or white. And we've had so many advances in, in medical technology that I, I don't know that you would want to limit yourself to something like that. Same reason why we started changing how we did those healthcare directions from the early 90s. When we saw if it's in black and white, I only want a ventilator for two weeks. That's what they have to do. 
now you're at the ethics committee because the, the hospital staff might be saying, but you really need them for two weeks in one day. So, so that's why I think a broader approach, giving our agents the full authority within the law and just empowering that agent with, with what your wishes are. You know, as we get older, and especially after we retire, uh, there's a tendency to travel more. Should you take your, your directives with you as documents or copies of them when you're traveling, especially either in this country or for the, especially out of the country, if something happens to you in a foreign country, will these directives be honored, or should you always have one with you whenever you pack a suitcase and go someplace? Well, I would say definitely within the United States, yes, you should have a copy with it or have access to it. Whether you have sent yourself a PDF of it to the phone, to your phone, or you forwarded your agent a copy of that, just so that people, you know, your agent is aware and can access it. The states will recognize and honor power of attorney for healthcare documents from other states in an emergency. I tell my clients that maybe Snowbird or someplace, you know, for six months a year, consult a lawyer there. Make sure if you're going to be in Florida for six months a year that this power of attorney for health care that we prepared in Missouri is really going to work for you when you need it to work for you. And out of the country, I honestly, I really do not know what they would, how they would handle that. Is there a difference from what you just said? I gather there must be some kind of a difference from state to state on what's acceptable as a Dura power of attorney. So powers of attorney in general, they come from a federal law. And then each state, as cases are, are heard and developed in each state, then that shapes that particular state law about that. So there might be nuances in one state that don't exist in another state. But I think it's safe to say that as a general rule, they'll acknowledge that you've appointed an agent to make those decisions for you. Was the Nancy Cruzan case that stemmed from here in Missouri, and Bob, I know that you covered that at, mm-hmm. at that time, mm-hmm. is that something that spurred the laws that support advanced directives and having these type of documents in place? Absolutely. That was really the Cruzan case from uh, in the 1980 to 1990. That's the case that really set the law for the, for the whole country, because that's the case that set forth that a person, they needed clear and convincing evidence of the individual's wishes. And that, from that came the health care, our attorney health care directive, which is that clear and convincing evidence. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. Nancy Cruzan, Christine Busalaki, two young women who were alive in the 1980s who then were in their 20s. Two tragic car accidents that left each of them so severely brain damaged that some describe these as being in a persistent vegetative state. There were two epic court battles involving the so-called right to die, legal struggles that informed the legal conversation about a person's control over her own health care. Although there was controversy about how profoundly damaged these young women were, was she dead? There was no real dispute about this. Neither young woman was able to speak or otherwise tell us what she wanted her doctors and nurses to do for her. If Miss Cruzan or Miss Buzalaki were conscious, and could communicate. They would have a right to decide what treatment, if any, they wanted, but they were unable. The law says they were incompetent. And if incompetent and thus unable to speak for themselves, who would speak for them? In both cases, their fathers asked that treatment be discontinued, that they be allowed to die. In Cruzan's case, after her case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, who was sent back to the trial court in southwest Missouri, 
which heard evidence that supported the family's position that Nancy Cruzan would not want further treatment. She died after treatment was discontinued. Christine Busalaki's father had a court order to allow treatment, feeding tubes, air support, to be removed. But the state had appealed. When a new attorney general, Jay Nixon, was elected in 1992, the first thing he did upon taking office was to dismiss the appeal. The father's wishes expressed on behalf of his daughter, Christine, were carried out and she died shortly thereafter. Now we have laws passed by the legislature to guide us in these matters. Your right to decide, even after you have lost the ability to communicate, can be carried out through your agent, someone that you choose who will decide for you. That person is given the power of attorney. Attorney in this case doesn't mean a lawyer. Attorney is simply a fancy word for an agent. And the power is durable. It lasts until you revoke it. We may yet again have lawsuits about the right to die and related issues. But with this legislative guidance, we now have a system that formally recognizes that you, the potential patient, can be in charge. And as Farah and Bridget and Bob have been telling us, the Missouri Bar has made it simple to make sure that your wishes are known. Legal ease. I remember back in those discussions, there were friends who stepped forward and said, well, she had said this to us at one point or another, had mentioned something like this. There was a similar case out of the St. Louis area, as I recall, too. And it became the same thing. The, the friends could say this person told them that, but that wasn't quite enough, as I recall. That's right. I think it was, I think they used to call it, like, refer to her as a housemate. Yes. She wouldn't, she wouldn't want to live like that. And so, yes, while, while that was an opinion of, of something that she had said to someone, it wasn't what the courts believed the hospital staff, the treatment team needed to, to make those life-prolonging, sustaining decisions in terms of removing her from the ventilator and the tube feedings and everything else that she was receiving at that time. And I, I think that's interesting you brought that up. You know, she was 25. Terry Schiavo, the other case about the same time out of Florida, 26. Mm -hmm. And I think when people think about this, they think they need it when they get old, whatever old means anymore. And I say to them, these landmark cases, these were young people. These were young, healthy, working people. So we should really think about having these documents in place, even as young as our 20s. Right. And what I will often say, and what I did it for my own children when they went away to college, you know, after 18... They're, they're not a minor. Your parents can't, you can't access the medical record. You can't make decisions for them. So when my kids went off to college, I said, this is what we're going to do just in case. And so we did it. And I think that's kind of a good time, time to do that because they are on their own. They are of legal age. But at that age, they think they're bulletproof. And it's, how, hard, how, how, hard was it, how hard was it to have that conversation? Well, my son, you know, fought me, fought me on it. Nothing's going to happen, you know, because you're exactly right. They do feel invincible. But I think because of my experience working in the hospital all those years, seeing how things are happening to people when they're not planning on it, they went ahead and went along. And I can be pretty convincing. Um, but you're right. It's not always, the kid's not going to think of it. Your child's not going to think of it. So now that we've talked about how important it is to have these documents in place, what are some steps that someone can go about? I mean, do they have to contact an attorney? Do you recommend that they work with an attorney? I know that at the Missouri Bar, we have great lawyers across Missouri like you who help draft a form that we provide for free in this area. Um, what are some steps that you would recommend on how to get these in place on April 16th, if, you, if you're still inclined? Right. That's exactly right. So, and you mentioned it, the Missouri Bar website has 
a very good, very thorough, durable power of attorney for healthcare and healthcare directive. So if people are concerned about finances, I mean, by all means, go. You can download it. You can work at it, work it online, print it, download it, take it, you know, have it notarized and witnessed. I mean, that's the great way to go. You don't have to work with a lawyer to do it. Hospitals are doing it. You know, we're going to be out in the community on, community on April 16th and another date there in April providing this power of attorney for healthcare and the opportunity for people to do it. So I think if you have a situation that might be a little unusual or maybe you want to be more personal in terms of your approach on your directive, some people have specific religious preferences or beliefs that really aren't necessarily accommodated for on a standard form. And so I think at that point, you'd want to reach out to your attorney and, you know, make a different one or more personalized one and, and let them know what your goals and wishes are and have them help you to accomplish that. Are forms available at doctor's offices or at the hospitals when people go in if they want to, if they want to decide when they check in that they want to fill out one of these forms? Or if the doctor mentions it, they can pick up a form and take it home with them? Or is, is that proper? I'm not sure. It can't, I'm not sure about doctor's offices, but all the major medical centers mm-hmm. have their own power of attorney. Some of them use the Missouri Bar form. I know that. Some of them have had their own legal counsel prepare power of attorney for healthcare documents. I mean, they have professionals, generally social work or chaplain, that will meet with patients upon admission or upon request and provide them that information and facilitate them getting it signed and notarized. Excellent. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about filling out the form or questions in general that you think those who are listening might have about the advanced care directive? Well, I, I think there's there's a couple resources for people. In addition to the Missouri Bar, there's the National Healthcare Decisions Day website, which is at nhdd.org. And there's also an, another program called the Conversation Project. And they have a website as well, uh, all one word, theconversationproject.org. And they offer what they call a starter kit. So with the idea of April 16th being to educate, inspire, empower they're working hand-in-hand now with National Healthcare Decisions Day to help people to talk about these end-of-life wishes. And it's a pretty simple, I think, I've done it, easy-to-follow set of questions and answers, and it really brings to the forefront and and helps people themselves that are going to do this kind of begin to articulate what they want. Because most people think about it, and then it goes away. But this helps you to begin to articulate it, and it brings forward information about, do you, you know, at your end of life, do you want to be with your family? Are there particular, um, is there music, or do you have a particular faith, or do you want a particular, um, you know, person from your church there with you? So I think it's a great way to get started. You've been listening to Is It Legal To, a podcast service of the Missouri Bar. We're glad to have had Bridget Fernandez with us to talk about end-of-life health care and long-term care issues. Bridget, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You can find the free Durable Power of Attorney for Healthcare and Advanced Directive form that Bridget discussed at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org, as well as a blog post Bridget wrote that helps answer frequently asked questions about the form. We've been talking today about the importance of putting our end-of-life wishes in writing, and here to share with us how our right to make those decisions is protected in the Constitution is the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons. The Constitutional Foundation for today's topic hits close to home. 
The landmark decision of the United States Supreme Court dealing with these issues arose from an automobile accident that happened here in Missouri on January 11, 1983, in Jasper County. As a result of that accident, a 25-year-old woman named Nancy Cruzan fell into a coma that degenerated into a persistent vegetative state, a condition in which a person exhibits motor reflexes but shows no indications of significant brain function. Surgeons implanted a feeding and hydration tube in Nancy to keep her alive, but she was able to breathe on her own and her circulatory system functioned properly. After five years, contending that there was no chance of recovery, Nancy Cruzan's parents filed a lawsuit to end artificial nutrition and hydration procedures for her, an action that would cause her death. The trial court in Missouri ruled for Nancy's parents. The Supreme Court of Missouri reversed this decision and ruled that Nancy's food and water were not to be terminated. Even though it ruled against Nancy's parents, the Supreme Court noted, only the coldest heart could fail to feel the anguish of these parents who have suffered terribly these many years. The parents appealed to the United States Supreme Court. In the 1990 decision of Cruzan versus Director of Missouri Department of Public Health, the United States Supreme Court also ruled against the Cruzans. However, the Supreme Court's decision gave hope to those who might face a similar situation. In his opinion for the court, Chief Justice Rehnquist provided support for the idea that there is a constitutional right to refuse medical treatment. He wrote, at common law, even the touching of one person by another without consent and without legal justification was a battery. This notion of bodily integrity has been embodied in the requirement that informed consent is generally required for medical treatment. The informed consent doctrine has become firmly entrenched in American tort law. The logical corollary of the doctrine of informed consent is that the patient generally possesses the right not to consent, that is, to refuse treatment. Rehnquist, a well-known constitutional conservative, nonetheless acknowledged the principle that a competent person has a constitutionally protected liberty interest in refusing unwanted medical treatment may be inferred from our prior decisions. But what about a person who is not legally competent to make a decision about refusing medical treatment, as was the case with Nancy? There, Rehnquist drew a line. While he was willing to concede that another party might make such a decision on behalf of a patient, there would need to be clear and convincing evidence presented that the person's request conforms to the wishes expressed by the patient when competent. This is where Nancy's parents lost their case. They needed clear and convincing evidence that their daughter wanted medical treatment stopped under these circumstances. All they had was a past conversation between Nancy and a housemate in which she was alleged to have said that she would not want to live if she faced life as what she called a vegetable. This failed to meet the standard of clear and convincing evidence. What would meet this standard and satisfy this legal requirement? The answer was articulated by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in a concurring opinion 
in the Cruzan case. She wrote that the court's decision does not prevent states from developing other approaches for protecting an incompetent individual's liberty interest in refusing medical treatment and goes on to specifically reference delegating authority to make health care decisions to a family member or friend using durable power of attorney and creating a living will. O'Connor writes, These procedures for surrogate decision-making, which appear to be rapidly gaining in acceptance, may be a valuable additional safeguard of the patient's interest in directing his medical care. It was a classic instance of different approaches to judicial decision-making. Justice Rehnquist basically said, you don't have enough here for clear and convincing evidence of the patient's wishes. Justice O'Connor, ever the pragmatist, followed that by saying, but here's how you might be able to show clear and convincing evidence of the patient's wishes. When lists are accumulated of the most significant decisions of the Supreme Court, cases addressing major social and political issues are understandably included. The Nancy Cruzan case deserves to be placed on such a list. It not only opened the door, it identified the path by which individuals could make known their wishes on medical treatment under the most intense and dire of circumstances. Millions of Americans have since accepted the invitation inherent in Justice O'Connor's words and have designated surrogates to safeguard their liberty interest in refusing medical treatment. It is yet another example of just how relevant the Constitution is on some of the most important decisions we face in our lifetimes. Nothing further, Your Honor. The more you know about the laws that impact your daily life, the better decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bar Podcast. Is it legal to a regular look at your legal system and you?